Ready? No, but let's do it anyway. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Life Plus God podcast. My name is Alyssa Robinson. I am here with our senior pastor, Reverend Daniel Humbert. And I just want to put a little disclaimer at the top of this podcast. You might have seen the title of this episode, but we will be talking about sex in this episode. What? If this is uh, a podcast that you normally listen to with your kids or you listen to as a family, hey, parents, maybe you want to listen first and then decide whether or not you want to bring the kiddos in on this conversation. I think it's going to be really good stuff, but... Let's go ahead and dive into that big question. What does my sex life have to do with my faith? Oh, my. Wow. You ready? No. (laughs) But as I said, let's do it anyway. All right. So the reason I wanted to talk about this question is we've been kind of putting together questions based on what people are typing into Google and how they're getting to our website. And I cannot tell you the number of questions that are coming to our website around sex specifically. Inside of my marriage, outside of my marriage, what does the Bible say about it? What am I allowed to do? What am I not allowed to do? It is just all over the map and tons and tons of questions, not just around the act of sex, but around intimacy Mm -hmm. and how do I build intimacy with my partner if I'm not married? And it's just a lot of questions that people are turning to scripture for answers. Well, that's a good thing, right? It is a good thing, but it can also be a frustrating thing sometimes because text written 2,000 years ago might not have the same understanding of human sexuality that we have today. Yeah. Yeah. So let's dig in. I just got to say as well, I I find it fascinating. Your job and the search terms and the way you share them with me, I've just found them fascinating. You you know, you share this other list with me the other day, and I was like, really? This is how people find our church is by typing in these phrases? And you go, yeah, yeah. They stumble across us, whether it be from a blog post, from a worship series that we did years and years ago, like they find us. Yeah, that's great though, right? Yeah, yeah. But man, if you want to look for what do people really want to know about God, they're typing it into Google. (laughs) <laughs> Isn't that fascinating? Yes. So let's talk. Let's start with scripture. Let's let's really let's do. Yeah. How often is sex mentioned in the Bible, and what is the sentiment behind it? Yeah, man, that's a great question. It's so funny. Um, I, you know, I know some of this stuff, but I I did some more research, right? And so I'm thinking, oh, I don't know how often sex is mentioned in the Bible, and and thinking that it's not actually all that often. But man, when you look it up, it's there a lot, actually. And the fascinating part is, it's um, it's there in a whole bunch of different kinds of contexts, some of which are uh, very positive and affirming, and some of which are like off the Richter scale, bad, nasty, wrong kind of stuff, right? And so, I mean, you you, you can think of anything from um, Adam and Eve at the very beginning of creation to uh, where it says in Genesis 4, you know, that they either, depending on the translation, had sexual relations or he knew her or he went into her. These are the these are the phrases that are used. And depending on the translation, you may only see it 70 times in the scriptures, but uh, I, I forget the translation now, but one of the translations had um, well over 250 times, right? Mm-hmm. And you're just like, really? That's how often it is in scripture? So you've got real intimate kind of things like with uh, Adam and Eve or husband and wife. 
And then you've got some really radically bad things like the rape of Dinah or the rape of Tamar, uh, the rape of the guests at, at Lot's house, right? Or uh, the, the, the similar story in the book of Judges, chapter 19, where there's rape talked about. And so uh, it's there a lot. And it's there in all kinds of contexts as well. So you've got it in, for instance, we know that Solomon, the supposedly wisest king there ever was, who has 300 concubines. And uh, last I checked, a concubine is essentially a sex slave, right? I mean, so you've got this guy who's lauded as uh, some number one great king, and then some Christians lift him up as like the, the great teacher of intimacy. And I'm like, really? He's got 700 wives. He's got 300 concubines. How intimate can it be? <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm just like, how stupid is this man? I mean, I'm just like, how wise is that, right? Yeah. And so I have been fascinated in sort of getting ready for this in the, the frequency with which uh, sex is referenced in Scripture. And unfortunately for us, probably more from a negative perspective than in a positive perspective. Well, and that's what I think is like a lot of people who are searching around this topic are trying to find the morality. Like where is the moral line in sexuality? And it feels like that's not really what the Bible is trying to teach us? Like, does the Bible lay out any uh, moral guidance for our sexuality? Or is it just stories that include sex because that's human nature, just like there are stories that include eating and yeah, drinking? Yeah. I, I would just tell you, from my perspective, the Bible addresses uh, sexuality very rarely. It's really talking about the act of sex, and it's really talking about the ways in which uh, sex can be misused. And so, as a, for instance, almost exclusively in the New Testament, when sex is talked about, it's about sexual immorality. And the definition, at least for most folks, the, t the typical definition of sexual immorality is uh, adultery or a temple prostitution. And uh, I, I hope we would all agree that those are probably really bad things, right? We, we don't really see temple prostitution anymore, but right, this whole sense in which somebody's getting paid and or is in, in human slavery, right, to, to have uh, paid sex um, or to have sex uh, with just sort of other people randomly, we would identify as adultery, right? And so... Um, it, but it just uses the generic term, sexual immorality. So They're, is adultery not confined to sex outside of your marriage? Yes, yes. So adultery is sex outside of marriage. Okay. Right. Okay. Yeah. So when we're looking to the Bible, because there's this weird dance that we do in the church of it feels like there are all of these rules uh, that the church has put in place, with capital C, around... Um, sex and what to do and what not to do. And yet the guidance is very minimal in scripture of what to do and what not to do. It really only lists a couple of things. Um, but we're, we're constantly you know, like all of these searches around like, what is it to be sexually pure? What is it? And there was this purity movement that yeah. came about in the nineties and was really about saving yourself, uh, for marriage. And, you know, the church was basically like abstinence, 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 like, let's not talk about sex. Let's not, you know, uh, do this whole promise ring thing that was 
that creeped me out, you know, with these classes, promise room classes that you would take with your dad and promise I'm not right. going to have sex right. and all of this stuff. The church seemed to get heavily involved in this conversation, but it was it felt like it was around shame. And I just don't know if that's what scripture was trying to point us towards. Yeah, scripture is interesting because again, as you as you highlighted right off the bat, uh, you know, our canon, our Bible that has both the Hebrew scriptures and the Christian scriptures, you know, is written over a period of about two thousand years, and some of which is literally two thousand years old, and some of which is almost four thousand years old, right? And mm-hmm. so, um, it's written over a huge uh, long stretch of time. And uh, purity uh, for the biblical authors was uh, much was thought of much differently than what you just referenced as purity. Uh, i.e. purity for the biblical authors was really about sort of physical purity. That is to say um, that emissions, like what happens in sex, is an impure thing because of the physicality of it. And then menstruation would be considered uh, impure. And so one, we are instructed very clearly in the book of Leviticus, like multiple times in chapter 15 and chapter 18 and chapter 20, where it's almost always referencing things like um, you, you, you are considered unclean when you have an ejaculation, or you're considered unclean when you're going through menstruation, and therefore you should not have sex. And there's that's the purity that they're talking about. The other context is that uh, sex for the biblical author was purely and simply for procreation. And therefore, if you're not procreating, any form of sex you may be having is, is inappropriate if it's not creating life. The, the Catholic Church, for instance, to this day still has that con- conception, right? So purity for the biblical authors is very different. Um, it is in, in the book of Leviticus, uh, in uh, I guess it's chapter uh, 18, Leviticus 18, there is like this huge enumeration of every single person that you should not have sex with, and it's very clear. I mean, it's, you know, your aunt and your uncle and your, your child and your, you know, your nephew and your niece, and, your, and it, it's very specific. I mean, line by line, verse by verse about who you should and should not have sex with. It wasn't enough to just say, <clears throat> don't have sex with your family members. That's just right. Just don't do that. No, it, they <laughs> like... got real specific, right? <laughs> and uh, when you back up to Leviticus chapter 15, that's where it talked about this purity that I was mentioning, and it's very explicit about how unclean a woman in her men- menstrual cycle is, and therefore you shouldn't be having sex with her. And Well, my guess, I don't know the evolution of the study of human sexuality. Did they even understand what the menstruation process was for, like what it did oh, within the Oh, I think very clearly body? they knew that it was about procreation and that that was a part of that. Yeah, I feel, I'm, I'm pretty convinced, though I don't have any tangible proof, that they understood what the menstruation was for, what yeah. its purposes were for, because you could see that both in the, in the animal kingdom as well yeah. as the human kingdom, right? And so uh, I'm pretty positive they understood that. But for uh, the Jew in particular, it was all about blood, because mm-hmm. blood uh, made one unclean. The irony is, of course, blood is what was demanded for uh, uh, offerings and was for purity for offerings, right? So it's just a it's just a fascinating concept. Um, so how did we how did we take the biblical concept of purity and turn it into what it is today? Like, did we misinterpret things? Because when I think of the way the church defines sexual purity now, it is 
Number one, no premarital sex. Wait until you're married. Number two, there are only specific types of sex that you're allowed to have. Yeah. And um, and honestly, it's just don't talk about it. Don't think about it. Don't act on it. <laughs> Those have all been um, what I would refer to as the puritanical movement, right, that started at literally with our country with the Puritans, and then moving into Victorian times, where we, we really felt like sex was not something you talked about. Sex was not something you addressed. It was taboo, right? <clears throat> in, the, in the scriptures, I won't say that it's wanton, right, and that it's just all talked about, but as I already mentioned, it's talked about quite a bit in scripture, the Old Testament in particular, and yet it's, it's done in ways that Golly, we would look at today and think, I'm not sure I would advocate that. I mean, you think, for instance, of Jacob and his two wives, or originally two wives, Jacob and Leah. He was also gifted to, um, you know, maids, if you will, f- through whom some of the 12 tribes of Israel, Bilhah and Silpah, are, his, are not his wives. And he has not only has sex with them, but he procreates and creates some of the 12 tribes, right? And his... Uh, uh, his grandfather Abraham likewise had a maid, right, Hagar, who gives birth to Ishmael. And um, we look at those characters and go, man, these are foundational characters to the faith. I mean, literally, we tie ourselves to Abraham, Isaac, and mm-hmm. Jacob, and yet their sex lives were not exactly what we would call pure, right? And so in Scripture, there's quite a bit of instances of sex that... Um, I, I assume, that's all I can do, I assume it's there to help us see the humanity of it all, right? The humanity of who we are, and then also to recognize, man, that's a part of who, who we have become. But as it, as it refers to sexuality, the, I, I just don't think the Bible, my perception of the, of the authors, that they don't have a real understanding of human sexuality so much as they just understand the act the of mechanics, sex, right? Yeah. The mechanics and what it what it does and how it works and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So this, I know that a lot of this will be your opinion, but I would be interested to know your opinion versus maybe the United Methodist understanding. Um, what do you believe God's intention is for our sexuality and how does it um, connect to our spirituality? Yeah, sure. Well, so so from the very beginning, we're told in Genesis 1 and 2 about creation, right? And in and through creation, Genesis 1 in particular, talks about how our creation was good. Uh, in fact, for humanity, very good. That's what God, that's how God described us. And so from the very beginning, I believe human sexuality is a gift from God, a good gift from God. And that's not just me. The The United Methodist Church uh, claims that as well. And therefore, we ought to identify that both our sexuality and sex are good gifts from God. And the ways in which we ought to use them, uh, again, both our sexuality and sex itself, is as a way to demonstrate and honor who God is in our lives by honoring the individual or, you know, that uh, we um, live out our human sexuality with. So um, when we recognize that sex and human sexuality are good gifts from God, then we have to recognize that all of us are good gifts from God, not just specific individuals or specific uh, people, if you will, and that that human sexuality has impact on our spirituality. 
but it doesn't have impact. Um, I'm trying to think how I would say this. Um, human sexuality is a component of who we are. It's not the totality of who we are, right? It's just like our ethnicity or our race or our gender or our intellect or any other number of components about who we are are simply components of who we are. They're not the totality of who we are. And um, so they have an impact on our spirituality to the degree that we can use them to honor God and or bless other people. And I think that's where we need to look at human sexuality is how is it that we can, um, that our human sexuality can have impact on our faith, uh, whether that's through how we render scripture or how we relate to other people, love and honor folks, those, all those kinds of things, right? Mutual respect for each other, uh, all of those things. So I, I think that as we get older and we mature both in our faith and sexually mature over time, we can grapple with these questions and exactly what you just said is determining each individually, okay, how is my sex life honoring mm -hmm. to God, honoring to my partner? However you define that, is it uh, mutual respect, adoration, support, all of those things? But... What about with our kids? Like, how do we have these conversations about sexuality with our kids? Because I know that there are many parents in our congregation that it's you, the rule is you wait until you're married, you wait until you're married, which was the rule for me when I was a kid. And that was the kind of conversations we had about sex in the church is there wasn't really a lot of conversation about the spirituality or the development or the connection or the intimacy, the relationship, all of these things, it was, that's something you save for marriage. Yeah. And I, I you know, so that was the guiding principle in our home, both the home I grew up in and the home uh, of my own children is um, human sexuality is a gift from God. The, the act of sex and the way in which it's used is a good gift from God. And therefore it ought to be used in a, uh, a unique, distinct and special way. Um, and therefore, one of the things that the traditions of the church said was, and not so much scripture per se, but certainly the traditions of the church was, because it's so special, because it's so unique, you really only want to be doing this with like one person, with somebody that you want to connect with the rest of your lives. Now, um, as I already mentioned, the biblical witness does not exactly prove that out, right, in terms of how it was practically lived out. But the claim was, if indeed this is a gift, we ought to use that gift in such a way that it's not just sort of, um, and, and these will be my words, but either thrown away or used frivolously or offered in such a way that it just, it has no meaning and value. Because a part of what we know as mature adults is a couple of things. One is, we like sex. It's good. It's fun. It's enjoyable. It's pleasurable, right? But what we also come to realize is it's deeply personal and it's deeply intimate, and that when we have sex with somebody, it you literally find a, a deep bond with that person. And there is something about that um, act of sex that, um, man, it's literally more than just the pleasure. It's more than just um, uh, the act of enjoyment, right? And so... Godly, we got to do something special about that. And so the church chose to say, let's make sure we just contain that. Mm -hmm. And that containment um, can prove 
on both ends of that spectrum. Uh, so as you pointed out, you know, these movements of purity that came to be, um, you know, for some it worked really well. For others, I, I can only assume for you, but I don't want to, you know, put that assumption on you, is it was a big turnoff, and it was like, what, wh- how, how am I supposed to render all this, and, and how can that even be real, and all, all those kinds of things. And then part of what we also know in biblical, uh, from the biblical days is most of the folks were really young when they got married. Yeah. I mean, literally, right? And so um, there was something about them that realized, number one, they didn't live very long, and so they're they're entering into marriages at the same time that sort of sexuality is blossoming, right? In adolescence, they wouldn't have known that. They didn't understand that. But whereas now we're getting married so much later, right? Even even early twenties, but clearly into the thirties before some people get married, and you're like, uh, you know, no offense, but man, you're already on the downhill slide, right? You're just kind of <laughs> like, wow. And so. Um, what do I do with that? And so yeah. that's that's a literal modern issue that we're still grappling with that we don't understand because the advantage, if you will, that those biblical authors and people of the day had was they were actually getting married and entering into these quote unquote lifelong commitments at age 12, 13, 14, 15 years old mm-hmm. when sexuality is kicking in, right? Well, and I, I'm, I'm really... Um glad to have you in this conversation with me because one of the things I also want to talk about is the difference in messaging between men and women Mm. in the church, because you kind of pointed out, Hey, Alyssa, I'm guessing your experience was different. And it it was, um, because as a young woman, and I really hope that this is changing. I really hope this is, and this was not a message put on me by my parents. It was just kind of an underlying societal message through the church and everything that I was a part of is young lady if you have sex, you have lost your worth. Mm. You have lost your value. And it was, they had the example of, you know, why buy the cow when you can get the milk for free? Mm -hmm. They had the example of, okay, here's a piece of gum. It's fresh. It's new. It's it's packaged. You take it out and you chew on it. And then I'm going to pass it around the room and everybody's going to chew on it. Do you want that piece of gum at the end of the day? Right. And it, it was just all of these demeaning, horrible ways for women to view their bodies and view their worth. And, and the truth is our sexual experiences are so different because I don't know if a lot of y'all have noticed men's bodies and women's bodies are different. They are. The way we experience pleasure and intimacy is different. And for women, it takes a lot more practice and a lot more, uh, self learning and knowledge about your body to learn where does what leads to that intimacy and that connection because um, the mechanics of sex in and of itself, honestly, it can do nothing for a woman Correct. Yeah. many, many times, yeah. you yeah. know? Yeah. And so it is this ongoing message of wait, 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 you'll lose your value if you have sex. But then once you do get married, you make your body available. Like now right. your husband gets to do whatever he wants. Yeah, you don't know your body, but he does and he'll figure it out and all of this stuff. And it it pigeonholes women into this horrible sexual experience that doesn't feel intimate and right. connecting. And unfortunately, that is a carryover from scripture because if you weren't a virgin when you got married, you were damaged goods, according to Scripture. And Well, because it, I guess it was the doubt of paternity would come into question of, like, how can I know 
that it, like, if you're not a virgin, how can I know that whatever child you have is mine? Like what was, yeah, why well, was there this there value wasn't. on virginity? Well, I think it had to do with purity. And I think it had to do with the fact that, uh, as I mentioned earlier, if you were a virgin, clearly, um, uh, you hadn't had, you know, an ejaculation inside of you. Clearly, you hadn't had um, a child, so you hadn't been made unclean. I mean, that's some of the irony, right, is to have a child in the process, you would have been considered unclean because there was blood, mm-hmm. right? It wasn't so much the menstruation that uh, would indicate that, because obviously you could still be menstruating if you were a virgin, but it was, um, it was just it was about value, and women were property, and so you, were, um, you weren't perfect property if you were not a virgin, right? The irony likewise is, in, in Scripture, is there are passages in um, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, that literally give out laws about, hey, if a guy runs across a woman in the, you know, in the hinterland in, uh, out, out of town or whatever, and he has sex with her, and she's a virgin, he, he, he has to pay the bride's price. Well... <laughs> We would look at that today and go, really? That, I mean, that was the culture of the day. It wasn't just the culture. It's in, it's in Scripture. It's a law in Scripture that she's property, and you buy her because you have, have tainted her, mm-hmm. right? Um, but so it, 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 it drives me crazy looking at sexuality in Scripture as a woman because you mention these people like King Solomon, King David, who we look at their sex lives and we're like, wow, predators. Like right. these, And yet these are people we say, you can, this is like the beauty of humanity and mm. look at this person and put them up on a pedestal. And who is it that we have to put up on a pedestal? Well, the Virgin Mary, who literally has a baby without having sex. Mm. Like, that's unattainable. <laughs> like that's not anything that any woman can look to and say, Oh, I'm yeah. going to be the Virgin Mary right. or, you know, and, and so. And yet you're right. We sort of throw that out there, right? We yes. throw that out there and uh, you didn't, you didn't bring this up, but, uh, but I will. And so as a teenage boy, I got very different messaging than what you just described. Mm. Right. I mean, my messaging was try to remain pure but by golly, if, if you score or if you make it or if you, way to go, buddy. Yeah. Don't get her pregnant. Wait, right. <laughs> and so you're right. The messaging really is quite different, even from well-meaning parents who are followers of Christ mm-hmm. and who want, you know, the very best for their kids. Um, the messaging is very different. And it, 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 unfortunately, it is sort of these holdovers. What I come down to is um, I still believe in the sanctity of marriage. I know that it's a hard go and it's a hard road. And when I say I believe in the sanctity of marriage, all I mean is I, I believe in the connection that two people can have when they uh, determine that that's what they're going to do, is be committed to each other and have mutual exclusive relationship and intimacy with each other. Um, uh you know, Scripture is real hard on that as well, right? I mean, Jesus says uh, the only reason that's valid for divorce is adultery. That's mm-hmm. the only reason. By golly, we've been facing that for, you know, centuries now that we get divorced for any number of reasons, right? And so um, sometimes Scripture's really hard when we face that kind I of stuff. I kind of disagree with Jesus on that, though, because, like, <laughs> I— <laughs> Hot take. Yeah, yeah. Come on, Jesus. Like, if someone— is being abused right. within a marriage 
and their spouse is not cheating on them, right? I think that that's grounds for divorce. Yeah. And I yeah. can't, I and mean, I, I don't agree. think that Jesus would disagree with that. I don't think he would disagree with that either. The, the reality is the context of what Jesus is talking into with regard to that in Matthew 6, and I forget the other one uh, where he talks about that specific issue, but... Um, He's speaking to how we miss, how we abuse and misuse people, mm-hmm. and ironically, spousal abuse or even human uh, abuse was just not um, really talked about yeah. in Jesus's day. I've actually heard it preached on with that specific message was that they were kind of using it to um, uplift Jesus as a feminist and mm-hmm. say he wasn't just talking about how we use and abuse people. It was about how we use and abuse women. Yeah, you're and right. he was specifically yeah. speaking to the men of this is the only reason to divorce your wife because the truth was um, men were able to divorce yep. women very easily then right. and women as property did not have the same That's opportunity. Correct. And so so these men were divorcing women for any reason and leaving them absolutely destitute right. because women had no right to work, had no right, had no money of their own, had no, no property right. because they were property. And so a lot of people have said, oh, this was actually Jesus being a very progressive feminist saying, husbands, don't divorce your wives. Yeah. So. Yeah, no, there's strength in that. That's absolutely right. Yeah. yeah. Why is it? that we, there is, I don't even know how to word this question because we don't talk about sex a lot in the church, Mm. but there seems to be sexual undertones constantly of, and I I made the joke in our worship meeting, um, this specific question, we were having people vote on what questions they wanted covered in worship. And this uh, question, what does my sex life have to do with my faith, got the least number of votes, but I joked around, this will be the most listened to podcast. (laughs) Because they are embarrassed to have to sit next to their family and hear that preached from the pulpit. But we all want to know, we all want to know, why does my sex life matter to the church or to God? Yeah. Well, so my short answer to that is because it's a part of who we are. And because it's a part of who we are, again, just like intellect or uh, ethnicity or any other thing, the totality of who we are matters to God. And when it comes to sex, a part of what we've realized both in biblical days and clearly in modern days is, man, we can misuse this gift. We can misuse it in a lot of different ways, whether it's enforcing sex like rape or whether it's uh, mistreating people in and through the act of sex, whether it's literally sort of wantonly going through sex partners, you know, just like hundreds and hundreds of folks or and then also just the simple realization that I may simply be having sex with you just to have pleasure not to really be a part of you, not to be with you, but to simply get my jollies. And so um, now between two and two people who are fully committed, by golly, if that's what you want to do, that's what you want to do. But if I'm just dating somebody or just I've just picked them up from the nightclub or whatever, and I'm just going to go pleasure myself without any sense of I, I want to be a part of you. I want to be, I want to know you. I think that's the context where it has 
it has impact. It has negative impact. And that's where we, the church has said, this is why we've got to reserve this gift, is because it can be misused on so many different levels, some of which are extremely obvious, and others of which, um, man, you only sort of know over time that it's sort of deteriorating who you are as a person simply because of the way you're misusing it. Hmm. Well, is is the idea that anything between two consenting committed adults is completely natural and and okay and there's not anything immoral about any way they choose to express their sexuality? Yeah, I think and this is where we get sort of um I don't know, nitty gritty, icky picky, however you want to say it. Um, I would say that if two people are married, that they're in this, uh, that they're in this covenantal relationship that has challenged them to say we're in this all in and we're you know committed to each other. Um, that as long as so that they're both equal. That is to say, it's very clear that we're both mutually exclusive. We're both mutually respectful. We're both mutually committed to each other. Whatever they want to do, as long as they've both agreed to it, yeah, I think that that's probably all right, as long as they've both agreed to it. Mm. What about, where Where does sexual orientation and gender identity come into this conversation? Because inevitably, that's what the church speaks into, is homosexuality versus heterosexuality, and then they bring transgenderism right. into the conversation, which I f- feel is a completely separate conversation, it's, but it's all lumped in together. Yeah, that, it is unfortunate that it's all lumped in together, but it is not, and they are very different and very unique, distinct kinds of circumstances. So I'm not 100% sure what you're asking, but um, uh, human sexuality, as we've already identified, is a gift from God. So a part of human sexuality is this acknowledgement that we have heterosexuals and homosexuals and even bisexuals and things of that nature, right? And so human sexuality is a gift from God. Um, it is only the way in which we might use that human sexuality that could be um, detrimental to me as a person or detrimental to somebody else as a person. And it matters not, at least the way I render, it matters not whether that's homosexual, heterosexual, bisexual, whatever, because um, the, 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 the human sexuality itself is the gift from God. The way in which we might use that becomes how it's detrimental. And one of the ways we distinguish that, for instance, is in the New Testament, uh, where Paul or, or Timothy in his letter talk about this, man, we've gotten it pretty wrong. When, we, when Paul talks in Romans 1 and 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and sometimes people have just generically blanketed that as homosexuality, that's way off base. Um, the, the, the Greek helps identify that very clearly so that we know that there are some real specific forms of misuse of human sexuality. So uh, in, in Romans uh, 1, uh, for instance, it, the Greek literally talks about somebody who dominates another, who literally sodomizes another, but it's, it's not rendered that way in the English. Mm. The Greek word is very specific, or senecatos, and uh, whereas the English, it, it's ironic because it comes into the English as literally just men. When you when a man lies with another man, and that's how it's rendered into the English, and you're like, really? Mm-hmm. That's not the word man or male, or it's it, it's not anything distinctive about the male. Well, it's like the way gender. that we used to gender everything was like mankind. Yeah. 
uh, maybe it's it's that we just never updated it. I don't yeah, know yeah, that it's yeah. like. And so it's 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 weird the way it has been rendered for uh, in most English translations is just the generic word man or male. Uh, when you get to First Corinthians uh, six, it there's two different words listed. And arsenicotos is one of them, and malakoi is the other. And the the New Revised Standard Version does it best. It says uh, it listed as male prostitutes, and then men who engage in illicit sex. And so, part of what Paul is talking about is um, male prostitution, because cultic male prostitution was relatively common. In fact. Um, Cultic prostitution for both men and women was pretty common, and that became a sort of a, a sore spot for the church because, golly, some of the converts to Christianity who'd come out of the cultic prostitution still wanted to do it, right? Mm-hmm. And so Paul had to address it over and over again. That's one of the big things he was addressing it to the church at Corinth because mm-hmm. the church at Corinth was full of converts from these other religions where the cultic prostitution was common. So he he's saying... Hey, that male prostitution stuff—that's not helpful, y'all. Let's mm-hmm. let's not do that. And then the other was um, uh, quite literally sometimes referred to as um, uh, pederasty or, or men having sex with kids, uh, boys in particular. And then finally, this um, uh, this illicit sex was what we, you and I, would now call sodomy. And you know, on the on the books of law today in modern times, sodomy is a very broad concept. Mm-hmm. It's not just anal sex; it's forced sex. And so, uh, what Paul is specifically talking about here is when you force sex on somebody. And so, he's talking about prostitution, uh, pederasty uh, in Corinthians, and and um, uh, forcing sex on somebody. Uh, golly, I think that's all wrong. Yeah. But that's not a blanket. On homosexuality. Yeah. The same is true in First Timothy. Uh, it, it's that same word that talks about illicit sex. And it was interesting. I looked this up just because, you know, I'm weird. Um, some of the older... You're going to have to clear your Google search history yeah. after this podcast yeah. episode. Yeah. <laughs> some of the oldest translations of scripture, like the 1599 Geneva Bible, mm. puts it this way, nor wontons nor boogers... Wanton, of course, means like, you know, sexually promiscuous, mm-hmm. right? Just kind of doing it all the time. And boogers, of course, is a British word, an English word f- uh, that's uh, slang for sodomy. That's right. what it means. But some of our English translations put just the word homosexual there. Mm. Well, and it's, I don't know if you've heard of the documentary 1946. Um, I haven't seen it yet. I'm interested to watch it, so I, I can't vouch for it. I'm not doing that. But it's the um, research and understanding that the word homosexual in English scripture did not appear until the year 1946. That's that's absolutely true. And that prior to that, it was the word sexual perversion or things that were more broad reaching and did not, were not confined to a homosexual relationship, could be in a heterosexual relationship as well. And that there was, it was um, a intense lobbying from some of the most traditional conservative side of the church that were pushing for these translations to say homosexual instead of sexual perversion. Yeah. So part of what you get then from something like that is uh, 
as that starts sort of ingratiating itself into uh, culture is this belief that purely and simply because somebody is a homosexual, clearly they're a pervert, or clearly they are wrong, or clearly they are not made this way, um, versus what we've been talking about, which is human sexuality is a gift from God. Mm -hmm. The way in which we might live it out, as Paul is describing here in very specific ways, can clearly be wrong. Mm -hmm. And we would agree that it's wrong. Every gift that we receive from God, we can pervert in some way, and we find a way to do it. (laughs) Right, right, right. Yeah. And so um, I, I think it's really important to understand that, that Paul is identifying some very specific behaviors, not just a blanket comment about homosexuality. If if you were able to have a conversation with church leaders around the world and um, change the way that the church addresses sexuality, or even maybe say, hey, let's start to address mm-hmm. sexuality, what are the things that you wish would change about the way the church talks about sex? Yeah, so one is, let's be open and honest. The Bible is not as clear and uh, straightforward as some make it to be on this, right? I mean, I've just described several ways Mm -hmm. uh, right off the top. Uh, The second is we need to talk about it more. I've been an advocate here at Treach and certainly at other churches uh, that I've served as pastor where I believe very strongly in human sexuality education for our children and our youth because, as you rightfully point out, when we don't talk about it, it does nothing but cause consternation, confusion, and, and perhaps even bad habits because if we don't talk about it, what we what we say without saying it is this is taboo. This you is should bad. be embarrassed and yeah. ashamed, yeah. <laughs> and that's just not helpful. Yeah. So I'm proud of the United Methodist denomination because for decades now we've offered human sexuality education for children and youth. Uh, we probably ought to be offering it for adults, and we don't do that in an appropriate way uh, or a way that I'm aware of. But when you have human sexuality education for children and youth, a part of the messaging is this. You, whoever you are, are a gift from God. You, whoever you are, in your sexuality is a gift from God. And then secondly, we would say, because this is a gift from God, we want to use it well. We want to use it in a holistic fashion. We want to make sure that when we have sex, that it's with somebody that we love and cherish and honor and uh, that we have a mutual, uh, uh, mutually respectful way that we do it, right? So uh, we, the church, through its tradition, would say that comes through marriage. And that's all about tradition, um, because this is a whole nother podcast at another day, but, you know, the Bible is not clear anywhere that says when you do X, you're now married, mm-hmm. whatever that is, right? Whether it's a ceremony or whether it's a, a set of vows or whether it's a, a, there's nothing in Scripture that says when you do X, Y, and Z, you're now married. Mm-hmm. It talks about marriage a lot, and it talks about the relationships in those marriages. But So I'm not going to get off on that because that's a whole well, other topic. Well, and that is, I, I will say, that is one of the things that I disagree with, but I also have a very uh, different experience with marriage sure. than you do. Um, having been shortly married and divorced and having no desire to get married mm. again, um, what I see is that marriage is not the key to unlocking intimacy. And 
in the no, legal sense, right? Yeah. Of like, um, I was legally married and in no way did our sexuality honor God and honor each other, mm. even if we thought it did. Yeah. yeah. And looking and now I'm, I'm not ashamed to say I have sex outside of marriage. Mm. It's not something that, um, bothers me. It's not something that I feel shame about or embarrassed about. It is, um, and it's honoring and it is intimate and it's meaningful and it's committed and it's beautiful. And I think that God smiles Mm -hmm. on it, you know? And so, um, I, I don't know if marriage is the hinge for me, but I think that, like you said, we kind of have to look into how are we defining marriage? Uh, Is it simply saying, I choose to be committed to you and you choose to be committed to me? Yeah, again, I think that's a whole other podcast because obviously that's a bone of contention in the life of the church, Mm -hmm. right, is about uh, sex in marriage in the context, and so therefore what is marriage and what constitutes it and all that kind of stuff. Because again, the Bible references marriage a lot, talks a lot about marriages themselves, but it never says, well, this is what makes you married. Mm -hmm. This is what constitutes marriage. Yeah. The last question that I have, unless there's some extra research oh, that let's you keep did, talking. unless there's some extra research that you did to like, <laughs> no, 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 I really want to hit this point. <laughs> um, why do you think that people are so interested in the answer to this question about sex and faith? Like what feelings are at the root of this? What wow, the real reason I'm asking? Yeah, I... I I can clearly only give you conjecture. I, I yeah. really don't know. Oh, no, we're just pontificating here <laughs> yeah. of what, yeah. what could be the motivation behind this question. Well, so uh, at the very core level, we're all sexual beings. So it's a part of who we are, right? That's the first thing. Second thing is it's been uh, so, what's the word? Um, it's been made such taboo over the decades that then there becomes this natural desire to know, well, what, so what, why is it taboo and what is that all about and how does that all work? And then, of course, the church, who obviously, I, you know, my whole life's committed to the church. Your life basically is committed to the church in terms of where you work and how you live it out. Um, the church has done some really good things with regard to human sexuality and sex and some really terrifying things with regard to human sexuality and sex. And so... I just think there's this this natural sort of coalescing of, man, there, this is, I mean, it just is. This is who we are. We've cut off a natural human inclination. So, Well, and that, that's what I was thinking is we have separated sex from faith. Yeah. We have created a divide between them and saying one has nothing to do with the other. And as a result of that, there's this huge piece of our lives that we want to talk about and we want to be able to have conversation about, mm-hmm. but we've created fear and shame around right. of if you are a right. person of faith sexuality is not an issue for you. It'll The pieces will just fall into place how they're supposed to, and you don't need to wrestle with it. You don't need to think about it. If it's right, it's right, and God will bless it. And that's not really how sexuality works. It is, I would almost say, it's the same as a spiritual practice. Mm. It's something that we are practicing, engaging in uh, on a regular basis. Of course it plays into our faith and our spirituality. Yeah, it would have to, right? I mean, uh, 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 at the most simple of levels, it is um, among the most human things we do. 
right? Mm-hmm. And eat, sleep, drink, poop. I yeah. mean, you know, it's, <laughs> I mean, it's literally at the core of our existence and therefore it has to. Um, but we try and separate it yeah. and put it yeah. in a different category. Yeah. Well, let's say human sexuality is a gift from God. And let's acknowledge that that is a good gift. Let's mm-hmm. use it wisely and hopefully and helpfully, mm-hmm. you know. Well, thanks, Daniel. You, you did bet. it. Oh, my. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate you coming on and tackling this tough topic. And uh, you can go sit I, by yourself in a room and decompress for the next yeah. hour. Well, I wish I, would, I could honestly say thanks for making this possible. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. Let's do it again sometime. <laughs> The Life Plus God podcast is hosted, written, and produced by me, Alyssa Robinson, and sponsored by Treach Memorial United Methodist Church in Flower Mound, Texas. If you live in the Flower Mound area, I invite you to stop by and see if Treach could be your new church family. You can learn more about all of our programs and events at tmumc.org, and I hope to catch you next week for our next episode of the Life Plus God podcast.